Thank you very much indeed. Uh, it's lovely to see all of you here tonight and um, a real privilege to be able to finish this um, chapter in Hebrews 11. And we're going to start right back at the beginning of Hebrews 11, and, but then jump back to the end. Uh, but just to begin with, to say thank you so much uh, for being here tonight. This is a, a sermon about faith and what faith means. And so my uh, aim in preparing it is to help each one of us uh, understand uh, what faith requires of us and, and where faith might take us. So that's going tonight. So if, if you feel that your, your faith levels are a bit low, uh, then the idea of this whole service is that we might uh, just increase all of that. And if in a sense you, you feel your faith is higher, uh, then we want to push it higher still and in a sense press you into thinking, where uh, is God uh, going to take me as I uh, walk uh, this life of faith? If you remember, if you were here when we started Hebrews 11, we started uh, chapter 1, uh, sorry, verse 1 of chapter 11, which says the following, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. Faith has always been right back then and it continues to be that now and it will be, continues to be something that is neither the blind faith that people criticize Christians for having, nor is it 2020 vision where we see everything absolutely clearly. It stands in between those two. So some people characterize uh, Christian faith negatively and say, in a sense, to be a Christian, in fact, to be a religious person at all, in a sense, you just have to shut your eyes and you have to step out into the abyss and you have to see what happens. So uh, normally that's critical in the sense that there's, there's no foundation for what we believe. Uh, sometimes it's a bit, ro bit more romantic and it's a way of saying, well, look, you know, we, we, we live in a, a, a world that's bigger than simply science. Uh, but you can't prove any of this stuff. So you just have to take every single thing on faith. I don't believe that's what our Christian faith is. But neither is it the other end. Neither is it uh, having 20-20 vision and being able to see everything absolutely clearly. So knowing where God's going to lead us, knowing whether when we take a course of action uh, that it's going to be successful or fruitful, uh, knowing that our lives are going to be full of wonderful things where we always feel like we're serving God and loving God and things are going great. Faith isn't like that either. We sit somewhere in between those two in what the New Testament often describes as the now and the not yet. So we live in God's kingdom now, but it's not yet been revealed or fulfilled or made perfect. And in that space, there is great joy, but there is also tension and unease and conflict. And we're going to explore that a little bit too. Of course, if we step back and look at society and the world, all of us are exercising faith every day. You, know, you choose to trust or not to trust the people that are close to you, people in your family. Uh, when you go to a doctor or a dentist or you call 999, you choose to trust or not uh, the people uh, that uh, you have asked to help you. We have uh, choices about whether we trust and have faith in some of the big organizations that run our country and our world. Do we believe in them? Do we have faith in them? Uh, often we, we don't. 
And, and, and so there's always been doubt and disquiet about them, but we probably live at a time where that level and that sense of distrust and dis-ease is much higher. But because we are human and we are frail and we don't know everything, all of us, including atheists, are living by faith. The question is, who do we have faith in? Or what do we have faith in? The foundation of our faith as Christians is multifaceted. It is, if you like, we have, we have two feet solidly in history. We believe in a God who makes himself known in the world, whose instinct is to reveal who he is and what he's like, and he does that by stepping in to the pain and the mess of our world. So Christians stand on history, on what we read in the Bible, what we know from the saints of old. So we stand there, but we don't stop there. Uh, our faith is also founded on our own experience. As we come together to worship, as we sit quietly at the start of the day or the end of the day and listen to some Bible read and pray and think and reflect on our day, as we, as we go out deliberately into the world to serve the poor, uh, to bind up the brokenhearted, to draw alongside those who are isolated or those who are confused, we experience God in those moments too. And we experience God when we come together Part of the beauty, the value of coming together is that that's when we can encourage one another, where we can share stories of faith and what God is doing in our lives. It's very persuasive, all of these things. Uh, and we only see the headlines of the end of the story. As we were thinking about a few weeks ago, we know what's going to happen. We know that either we're going to die or Jesus is going to come and take us home. We know the headline uh, at the end of the story. But we don't know a lot of the details. And often we can't see very far ahead. And that's where, in a sense, that's where faith becomes real. When there's no guaranteed cast iron certainty. Because then we get to trust in God. Now, we've rushed through uh, so far in Hebrews 11. Uh, it's like a who's who of the Old Testament. We've had Abel and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and, Moses and Rahab. The, the common ground to all of them has been in their courage. They have been people who've lived and worked for God's future. They've not been uh, overwhelmed by the present either by in sense, all the things that they could be doing for themselves in the present or in a sense the, the shouts of derision that are heaped on them in the present. They have a vision of God's future, a vision of hope, a vision of what God's kingdom might be. And they're willing to act faithfully, obediently, sacrificially for that, suffering derision and persecution and uncertainty. And we now, in the last part of Hebrews 11, gallop to a crescendo where, in a sense, you could, if this, I mean, we think this probably was, like this, this letter began life more, of a, more as a sermon than a letter. So you can imagine that when the, when the author of Hebrews, whoever it was, she or he, sort of got to this part of the sermon, they kind of speeded up because they were just trying to pile point after point after point. 
And the first thing they do is name six people uh, in Hebrews 11, verse 32. And I just thought I'd tell you a tiny bit about each one, just in case uh, you don't know. So they start off with Gideon. Uh, Gideon comes in, all these come in the Old Testament. Gideon uh, was nervous and he was very reluctant. When God came to Gideon at the time of the judges and said, Gideon, I want you to be a leader uh, to fight off uh, the enemy, uh, Gideon kept saying to God, "Uh, pardon me, Lord, uh, but you've got the wrong guy. Or pardon me, Lord, you know, I I am the the weakest person in my family. I'd just be absolutely no good. And I'm sure many of us have uh, felt the same. It, It took a long time for God to persuade Gideon that, he, uh, that Gideon uh, should uh, step up. And in that long time, I think a lot happened in his soul. Then we have Barak. Barak was another nervous, reluctant leader. He just, he just didn't want to do what God asked him uh, to do. Uh, he didn't want to do it at all. And he knew in his heart that the the real leader, the person who was really sorted and anointed by God, uh, was another leader called Deborah. And so he kept saying, well, I don't want to do it. Let Deborah do it. But the whole point was, was that Barak needed to be the person that came alongside Deborah and helped her and in a sense became her second in command. And once he'd got hold of that, then he lived a life of great faith. Then you get to Samson. Samson, if you remember, born of respectable, God-fearing parents, but an absolute beast of a man, unbelievably strong, uh, and, uh, but had a literal fatal weakness, which was uh, this total disregard for women, a lust for sex uh, that just meant he was just very, very deeply flawed. I don't think you'd have enjoyed meeting uh, Samson. And yet he did help save his people. Then we get Jephthah. Jephthah was a disinherited scoundrel who hung out with all kinds of misfits. He was a surprising hero, unlikely hero, but he had real insight by faith into God's purposes for his people. But he was also a fool because late on in his life, he made this really, really foolish, legalistic, faithless vow uh, that the first person he saw after uh, a battle that eventually he won, uh, he would sacrifice. And who came out of his house first when he came home with his daughter? And instead of doing the sensible thing, which is to say, that was such a stupid thing I said, he killed his own daughter. He's hardly a hero of faith. Then you have King David, Israel's greatest king, a man of God, a poet, a warrior, an adulterer, a negligent father, a murderer. David was such a complicated man. We still sing his songs day in, day out, today. Thousands of years later, we thank God for the way that he acted in leadership. But of course, he was deeply flawed. And then we have Samuel, whose greatest trial was, in a sense, to know that the whole of the nation had got it wrong about wanting a king and advising them and begging them to change their mind. But he was totally disregarded. And uh, it was his, in a sense, trial, his challenge uh, to keep listening to God even when no one would listen to him. And those six were followed by a whole host of others who are literally too many to name. All of them acted uh, and uh, courageously, 
and faithfully and a great sacrifice. Some saw God do wonderful things through their imperfect offers of faith. Others were killed or suffered deeply with, with no obvious or immediate results. It's probably Jeremiah who's in view as the, as the prophet who died uh, by stoning. And it's probably Isaiah who's in view as the person uh, who was sawn in two. And even though we're talking about them thousands of years later, thanking God for them, at the time, that would have looked like the most abject of failures. So I want to ask uh, tonight, what uh, does this part of Hebrews 11 help us to see more clearly about the nature of Christian faith? And so how does it equip us uh, to live by faith or to do faith, to exercise faith? The first thing, and maybe the key thing, is that faith is something that happens when we act. Uh, in English, we often uh, talk about faith in the abstract. It's something that we have. In Hebrews 11, faith is something that we do. We exercise faith or we walk in faith. And Hebrews 11, if you look back over it, is just full of action word after action word. So-and-so did this. So-and-so did that. And each time it's introduced by that, those two words, by faith. So by faith, Andrew did such and such and such. And by faith, Chris did this and this and this. And by faith, uh, Fred did this and this and this. It just each time, it's just got to go down that list. So faith driving them to action, uh, to doing things in God's world. When we do faith, when we exercise faith, we base our actions on both history and experience. We walk humbly with God. Uh, having faith is not primarily knowing things or being able to explain things, but it's doing things. It's acting in faith, believing in God, believing in his kingdom, believing in his goodness, believing in his compassion, believing that others are made in his image in this world. And often, it will be risky. There will be that sense of putting out your foot and stepping down and wondering, is the ground going to hold me or not? That is the essence of faith. Some of you love risk. And so therefore, this is great because you're thinking, oh, fantastic. You know, I can just do that because you're the kind of person that rides mountain bikes off cliffs and jumps down mountains. Uh, others of you are maybe a bit more risk averse and you live your life like trying to eliminate risk at every single turn. So it's going to be harder for you in a sense to walk in faith or to exercise faith uh, because it will always involve risk. As you know already, because in any relationship... There is always that sense of our taking a risk as we open ourselves up uh, to another person. I'd like you just for a moment to think back over the last six months or so, or six, nine, 12 months, whatever you want to do, and, and just think about what's been going on in your life. And the question is, can you think of one thing that you've done in the last six, nine, 12 months, one thing that you've done that we could describe as by faith? So we could, we could look at that thing and we could say, well, primarily, when Simon did this, it was by faith. just wonder if you can think about something that would be true for you. It would need to be something that was founded principally, like the, the 
core motivation was who God is and what he's promised. And it's something that wouldn't make sense to someone who doesn't love God and his kingdom in the same that you do. And that what you did by faith would be different to a family member or a neighbor or a friend who, who doesn't have faith. And so it might be in the choice of job that you're after. It might be in where you decide to live. Uh, it might be uh, in uh, about a relationship that you choose uh, to follow or not. It might be in, in, a, in, a, in what you sense as God's calling on your life. What, what does God deep down, what does he want me to do? What does he want me to, to give myself to? Am I, am I called to, to go somewhere else, to take a, a bigger risk, uh, to, 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 to do things by faith that humanly speaking, if I was just looking at the world through a lens that said there is no God, I wouldn't do. That is what faith is all about. Or to think about it another way, uh, how is God inviting you to courageous faith? How is God inviting you to act in a far-sighted and persistent and a hope-filled way? Because that's what God is inviting each one of us to. How is God inviting you uh, to show that your real home is in heaven and your real hope is in him? And so therefore your real home and your real treasure is not your house, it's not your career, it's not the relationships you build around you, but your real home, your real treasure is in heaven with Christ. That is what it means to exercise faith, to walk by faith. It will mean that for all of us here, the decisions that we take will look different to other people. So that's the first thing. Faith is something that we do. We, we, we do it. We exercise it. Secondly, though, we are imperfect people who exercise our faith imperfectly and sometimes awfully. We, looking around this room, are not heroes of faith. But neither were Gideon or Barak or Jephthah or Samson or David or Samuel. When we trust in God, it is God who graciously and generously takes that trust from us, fail, uh, frail and feeble though we are, and he breathes life into what we offer. You are not a hero of faith, but you don't need to be a hero of faith to love God and his world. Thirdly, faithful, courageous, God-fearing lives almost always, just occasionally they don't, but they almost always attract criticism as well as encouragement. They attract rejection as well as people cheering us on. And they attract mockery as well as people speaking well of us. And sometimes those lives offered and lived in humble faith end badly or end without any obvious or immediate results. In our passage, we have Daniel surviving the lion's den and, and going on uh, through faith to convict the king who'd thrown him there. And we've got Isaiah who speaks so beautifully and so compellingly uh, a vision of God's hope for the future and that Israel's going to be restored. How does he end his life? Well, tradition would have it that he was sawn in two. The most inglorious way to end. 
The difference was not that Daniel's faith was greater or deeper or more profound than Isaiah's faith. They were both imperfect people who dared to stake everything they had on their unseen God. And this teaches us that our area of deepest reflection it should be not, am I doing remarkable things for God? Am I praised? Am I loved? Am I admired? But am I being faithful and true? Am I walking by faith into areas of discomfort and uncertainty? Because that's where God is calling us to be. And lastly, the deepest reason that our writer lists these Old Testament characters is because she or he is 100% certain, like absolutely certain, that we, living now today, are more blessed than they were then. That's not because of technology or because we live in more enlightened times or because of improving living standards. It's because we live after Jesus whereas they lived before Jesus. We have Jesus. We have his example, his words, his action, his teaching, his commissioning to go out into the world, uh, to love the poor, uh, to work uh, for justice, to uh, go and make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We have Jesus dying and rising and ascending. We have the Spirit of Jesus living in us, empowering us, sending out into the dark and the cold places. This is a far, far richer way to walk with God. And so the author's point is that we are incomparably richer and better off than they were then. They, the people in this passage in the whole of Hebrews 11, obeyed and lived for God with far less to see and trust in and understand or experience regarding the purposes of God. They longed, they longed to see what we see and know. We today look back at the life of Jesus. We look up as we worship the risen and ascended Jesus. We look forward to the day when we run to be with Jesus again, or he comes to bring us home. And when we do on that day, we will have known him and loved him for the whole of our lives. They could see the faintest outline even someone like Isaiah, who spoke so much about what the Messiah would be, saw the faintest of outlines of what Jesus would be. We see it in high definition. So our response to Hebrews 11 is not, wow, I could never live a life of faith like Samson or David or Barak or Gideon. That is not our response, partly because those people were all ordinary, compromised, reluctant, off-beam, just like us. But mostly because we have Jesus as our pioneer and as our trailblazer, as the one who's gone before us and the one who is waiting for us. And so when we read Hebrews 11, what do we do? We thank God for these sisters and brothers who went before us. But we're not intimidated by them. We don't think, well, I could never live up to that. Rather, we redouble our resolve 
to live in the light of God's truth and his kingdom. We, we keep reminding ourselves, I know where my real home is. I know where my treasure is. They are with Christ in heaven. And so knowing that, we gladly walk the occasionally straight, mostly twisty, almost always foggy road of faith. But we do it together. And we do it cheered on by saints old and saints new. Amen.